Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Seven Pillars, a podcast in which we find a fascinating guest and talk to them about the things that have influenced them in their life, events, places or cultural things, their personal pillars of wisdom. And uh, my guest this week is an old friend of mine, uh, one of Britain's finest comedians, a writer, a novelist, a screenwriter, a terrible gossip. Um, (laughs) No, it's not true. You can trust her confidence it's joe brand thank you very much indeed you forgot to mention you forgot to mention that i do tend to bear a grudge that's my favorite hobby terrific bear of grudges (laughs) (laughs) it's one of your finer qualities (laughs) thank you (laughs) yes it's the longevity it's being able to hang on to it you have to remind me of the grudges oh yeah of course Charles the second, he got on my nerves massively. <laughs> I still hold it against him. Yeah. Now we've got your seven choices, and we'll sort of chat around them and find out what you were up to when you fell in love with these various things. And some of them were from your younger days. Some of them more recent things with your children. But shall we start with like the film that you've chosen? Yeah. Um, I will start with that because I watched it a couple of days ago because you've chosen it, and I thought I'd better at least know something about it. And it's a film called What We Did in Our Holiday, which stars David Tennant and Rosamund Pike and Ben Miller, Billy Connolly and Amelia Bullman. And it's written by Guy Jenkins and Andy Hamilton, wasn't it? It was. And it's about a couple going to see David Tennant's father and they're breaking up and they don't want their granddad to know they've got three kids in the car with them. Tell me about your love of this film, Joe. Okay, well, they don't want the granddad to know that they've broken up because he's got terminal cancer and he's dying. And they think if he finds out, it'll just make him more unhappy. So they go off to Scotland to see him. And then it's the ensuing story of how that all works out. Well, if I could just say, first of all, the reason that I like it, this is a quite a generalised reason, but it's not American. And uh, I, I do have a terrible grudge against Hollywood and American films generally. And I'm not saying I'd be hard pushed to name an American film that's good, because I wouldn't. But I do love a sort of British film that has British humour in it that I can identify with. I love Billy Connolly. I love David Tennant. I think Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkins are fantastic writers who wrote Outnumbered, of course, and who just know how to manage children when they're making a film because they don't make them learn lines, so they're stilted. They just give them an idea and let them run away with it. And it's such an interesting film because it's a really odd mixture of supreme comedy and terribly sad family tragedy. 
which all fits into my personal lexicon of what I like there to be in a film. <laughs> ticks a lot of boxes. It ticks all my boxes nearly, <laughs> apart from the fact that I'm not in it, because I would quite like to have been in it, just behind a rock grinning for two seconds, <laughs> like Alfred Hitchcock used to do. And I think it's very funny. I think it's very moving. I think Billy Connolly is great, and I always have done. So it's kind of a nod to all those sorts of things. I think British films are much better than American films. And if you don't agree with me, what about Tyrannosaur, all the Monty Python films, Harry Potter, Shane Meadows films, any single one of them, The Longer Friday, Clockwork Orange, Train Spotting, Don't Look Now, and Four Lions and Kez. Just think of that treasure compared to Dumb and Dumber, and need I go further? <laughs> oh, no, no, you're going so well. <laughs> But Dumb and Dumber is magnificent. <laughs> Actually, I've never... I don't disagree. Have you never seen it? Oh, my goodness. No. You'd love it. It's hilarious. Uh, I would not. <laughs> I'd hate it. I can just tell from the poster. No, you can't tell from the poster. And that's why this film, I found it interesting, because you can't tell this film from the poster. The poster looks like they're going on a seaside holiday and it might be jokes about eating sandwiches and wearing anoraks in the rain or something like that. And actually, and without wanting to spoil it for listeners who haven't seen it, it takes a really dark turn in the middle and it's got some of the blackest comedy you'll ever see, which I suppose is quite an English trait in itself, black comedy, certainly in the theatre. It's also, I don't you think, a real love letter to Scotland. The scenery is absolutely spectacular in it. Lots of lingering shots of locks and beaches. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think that's another way that we differ from the Americans, because what they do in America, right? I mean, sorry, Americans, if you're really hating this, but you're good at everything. You're bigger than us. You're better than us. You win more things in the Olympics. So just suck it up for once, OK? Um, what, <laughs> what is... What's kind of so lovely about our films is they can take a darker turn. In America, they show it to an audience. If they don't like the end because it's too sad, they make it happy for them so they don't all go home and have to see their therapist an extra time that week. And I don't like that. I think that we need to be kind of exposed to things that we're all kind of a bit uneasy about. And, you know, being terminally ill is one of them. I think you've got something there, certainly. I do think that if you'd put this down as a two-line pitch for a Hollywood studio, you wouldn't have got through the door. Um, the events that transpire, the role of the children, is all quite uh, surprising. I didn't know when I started to watch it that Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkins were behind it, but you did feel that outnumbered vibe, certainly. And I really enjoyed some of the stuff in the car on the way to Scotland. I really enjoyed the winding up Ben Miller. I love Ben Miller and he plays quite an uptight, grumpy Scottish uncle in this who's very, very wealthy. I particularly like the scene where the children were trying to get to the bottom of why he was so wealthy and he couldn't quite put his finger on it. And then the youngest <laughs> yeah. kid says to him, when are we going to get an answer to this question? Which is really... <laughs> Should have paused it and rewound it and watched it again. Can I just have one more very quick moan about American films? Yeah, well, please do. We're hoping to get quite a listenership in the States. <laughs> but um, one thing that happens which really annoys me is you get someone writes a perfectly good film 
for British people. And then we have to have some kind of slightly wooden American actress in it who ruins it. With the one exception for me being Rennie Zellweger in Bridget Jones, because I think she's hilarious, Rennie Zellweger. Her English accent's impeccable. But there are other things, I'm not going to mention who they are, because then that actress might have to send someone around to injure me. Um, but <laughs> I'm you sure you're really, you're really thinking of Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, <laughs> right? I think That's you're from a generation of people who's really never quite got over that, and, that was, and, and, and rightly so it was absolutely shocking it was but when I was five I didn't care but looking back on this I do care and I see exactly what you mean yeah yeah well it's a lovely film it's a dark comedy and it does all those things that you say it's a surprising quirky British film wonderful cast I think they might have ended it about three scenes too late but they kept going and kept going and they got a little bit much in the last couple of frames but I forgive them that because it was a really fun ride on the way and I'm glad you put me onto it because I don't think I ever would have watched it and I think it's because of the poster I don't know how you've turned this into something maybe it's the title doesn't quite sell it it wasn't a film that really took off was it because I think the reason being the thing that makes it such an interesting film if you use that in all the publicity it's a big spoiler you can't give away what happens the main event in the heart of the film, it would ruin the film. So you sort of have to find a way to sell it. And anyway, you've done a good thing here for it. They might shift a DVD now. Well, exactly. Also, maybe you could graffiti some posters saying, I think it's very good, Alan Davis. That would help as well, I think. <laughs> that would be the absolute death knell. The whole <laughs> thing. <laughs> I shared a flat at the Edinburgh Festival with Ben Miller, and I have to say, he wouldn't do the washing up unless you really nagged him. So... Oh, that's, he's gone down in my estimation now. <laughs> uh, Tennant and Pike, did you like them? Are you a big Rosamund Pike fan? Well, I think she's good at comedy and it's not an easy thing to do if you're an actor who's attractive, I think. Because, you know, a lot of actors who are very funny have a bit of a head start because they have sort of slightly odd looks, whereas she just looks very normal and kind of pretty. And I think it's quite hard to turn the comedy on and she does and she holds her own in it because I think David Tennant and Billy Connolly, my Lord, you know, playing against them must be quite a challenge for a woman actor who's not really done a huge amount of comedy before, but I think her part's really well written and she's great in it. Yeah, I think she's very good. And she does very well that you don't really notice that she's considerably taller than all of her co-stars. <laughs> Did she stand in a trench? I don't know. She, she might have done. Been, I she think was... Miller must have been on a box. Did it take <laughs> you back to any driving holidays of your own, going on long car journeys, either as a child or as a mother? Many, many, many. As a child myself, we used to go to Scotland a lot because my aunt was married to quite an unusual Scotsman who, I can't really say what he did, but just suffice to say... One day the news was on and he was on it being arrested for trying to blow something up. He was a Scottish nationalist and he used to play the bagpipes in our garden with his kilt on. And I'll say no more about that. But anyway, we went to Scotland a lot. And so I do know it quite well. And I love Scotland to bits. Yes, I do too. It's a fabulous place. We never used to go there as a kid. I really started to go there for the Edinburgh Fringe and then sneaking out and getting out up to Glencoe and these amazing places. There's nowhere more beautiful, really, is there? Though we used to go to the south coast on our incredibly long car journeys down the A303 with nothing to do in the car except the perspiration of my father and uh, cricket on the radio. Well, that's more than we had. We didn't have a radio. <laughs> 
And we just had my father not even perspiring, just shouting at everyone most of the way. And us trying to play I spy and everyone just being really uncreative and I spying the same thing every time. Is it a tree? Yes. Okay. I spy something to do with tea. Is it a tree? Yeah. So, yeah, hideous those journeys were. Hideous. Well, it's a lovely film. What we did on our holiday, it's released in 2014. You will find it on various streaming services. So enjoy that one. Now, let's move on, Joe. We're going to move on just in no particular order, but because I've sketched it down next to that on my list, is your favourite food, your food oh, stuff. Yeah. And you've chosen, tell me what you've chosen. Well, I've chosen a meal that I cooked for a load of students in my first year at university. Let me just sort of interrupt the flow of my beautiful cordon bleu cookery uh, experience <laughs> by telling you that I never really learnt to cook and I don't like cooking. And I really like that Joan Rivers line where she said about Elizabeth Taylor, she's the sort of person that stands in front of a microwave telling it to hurry up. That's what I'm like. Um, you know, I think cooking's really boring. And I think sort of food with herbs in is really annoying. I'm a terrible cooking Philistine. So basically, I cooked them mash and sausages and beans. I think they're about 15 people. And uh, they liked it very much indeed. So it was a very successful dinner party. And I think all those people, along with other people, pretend a lot of the time to like posh food, but actually they really don't. They like crappy food, like what I do. So something of the child's palate, would you say, remains? Are you also a fan of the fish finger sandwich? <laughs> Everything of the child's palate, not something. <laughs> yeah, because in fact, when, you know, people would go, oh, is that responsible for your weight problem? The a resounding, yes, it is, because I do like that sort of very unhealthy food. We used to have fried bread sandwiches for breakfast when I was at university. Basically, <laughs> cardiac treatment on a plate for everyone. And, you know, nobody ate healthily. But I have to say, it's not really changed these days, apart from a very small amount of people that are running around a lot, not weighing enough, and going into places like Leon, where, actually, I have to say, they do do fish finger wraps. Have you had one of their fish finger wraps? I haven't, but I've had some food in there. I quite like a fast food place. Let's face it, the chain restaurants that you can get now, compared to what we had in the 80s or the 70s, it's unbelievable what you can get on the average high street. I mean, we did not eat out under any circumstances. We might very occasionally venture into a wimpy or a little <laughs> chef. We might go in the little chef where you'd have, this is in the days before I stopped eating meat, where you'd have a burger and a sausage wrapped around it with little cuts in it so you could make a circle. And that was the <laughs> presentation of the dish and then they'd slide an egg next to it that was considered exotic in those days it was we loved that i used to work in the golden egg and that was basically loads of dishes with a fried egg on that was it really and burgers with a fried egg sausages with a fried egg fish fingers with a fried egg yeah it didn't last long but i've sat with you in many a curry house and a late night Cypria establishment eating all the cuisines of the world. But there's something about the comfort food of home. I mean, I know that as a student, no one can cook anything, can they? I mean, I just had toast for four years. <laughs> toast and fags. <laughs> used to keep food outside the window so it was cold in an effort to stop it going off. 
You wouldn't rather have a prawn boona? No, because I'm allergic to seafood. So obviously I'd like to be vomiting as I died. <laughs> so I wouldn't like seafood for my last meal. Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Your favourite event next, okay. Joe Brand. Your favourite performance event, and it's Condeed. Is it Condeed? Is that the right pronunciation? Or Candide? <laughs> yeah, Candide's good. Well done. Uh, Condeed. Condeed, the Leonard Bernstein musical version of Voltaire's novel Condeed. I only know these things because I looked at Wikipedia just before talking to you, but it's not something I'm familiar with, apart from it's full of terrible disasters and tragedies, is it not? Tell me about what you saw. Well, yes, I saw a musical, as you said. The lyrics were written originally, I think, by someone called Lillian Hellman, but they were rewritten. I can't remember who wrote them now, but I did write it down somewhere. I'll tell you in a minute. And uh, Bernstein wrote the music, and it was at the National Theatre, and it starred Simon Russell Beale, who I think is an absolute genius and is very good at comedy. And because he's not on the telly very much, he's more alluring, I think, because if you see someone who's a kind of theatre personality on the telly all the time, they get a bit annoying. But he kind of keeps off the telly quite a lot. And 
This was an absolute triumph, this. It is a comedy, it's a satire, and it's set kind of two or three hundred years ago. And it follows a lot of the events that were going on at the time, which was of kind of various disasters, floods and plagues and all the rest of it. The world was riddled from syphilis from top to bottom. Everyone was a complete hypocrite, particularly the church, who was saying, you know, you're not to sleep with anyone. And then the, all of them, right down to the guy that handed out the hymn books, had syphilis. You know, it, it's just an attempt at sort of looking at humanity and what a hideous lot we all are, really. And... This is all set to music very beautifully and the lyrics are very clever. It was a sumptuous production and Simon Russell Beale was an absolute triumph in it. And I just absolutely loved it. And all the things I've seen at the theatre, it really massively stands out to me. It's very, very funny. I wish I'd seen it. This was on in when, about 20 years ago, would you say? Yes, I would say 17 or 18 years ago, yeah. Wow, sounds amazing. When they get it right at the National, they really get it right, don't they? They've had some amazing things there. Was it one of those three-hour jobs? Was it quite an endurance test? It was one of those three-hour jobs. But, you know, those three-hour jobs are very much to do with the fact, aren't they, that if they're good, they seem like an hour and a half. And if they're bad, they seem like a day. So it just sort of depends on how good they are. And I remember going to see a thing about Edith Piaf years ago with a very good friend of mine, and it was terrible. And we only stayed for the first half and left, and she had a... A big run-in with one of the ushers because she said something to him like, we're not staying for the second half, this is shit. And he rather wittily <laughs> came back at her with, so's your haircut, which I <laughs> was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> a bit of stand-up comedy in the theatre. So, yeah, I think bad theatre, there's nothing worse. I remember going to see The Cherry Orchard, which is, you know, a sort of literary play that is held up as a work of genius. And because there was someone dying at the end while the cherry orchard was being cut down and they were dying rather badly, me and my husband had to have our coats stuffed in our mouths because we were just pissing ourselves laughing so much and we were meant to be crying. And that's what bad theatre is like. It's equally entertaining, but for the wrong reasons. Oh, Chekhov's very hard to get right, isn't it? You can get a dull Chekhov, but when it's good, it's very, very good. When it's bad, it's not only horrid, but you sort of know... After about four minutes, and you think, oh, no, it's bad. And then you're in the middle of a row and you can't get out. I know. I think you could have a system where everybody in the audience has got a button or a dial, maybe, and they can turn the dial one way or the other to say, this is going well or this is dragging a bit. And if a majority of people are turning their dial in a way that says, hurry it up, would you? Then the actors just start saying the words more quickly. I was in a play once and it was a really, it was a monologue I was doing and it took about 85 minutes to do it. And then after a few weeks in the run, I was going really dying with boredom and we hadn't had very good reviews and there was a fair number in the stalls, but nowhere else. I was thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was taking 95 minutes. And I realised that there was 10 minutes of me just standing around not talking. <laughs> and I do think, speaking of having done a little bit of acting, that there's a lot to be said for getting on with it. And the no. many plays would be less boring if people just hurried up. So I think you need a speed up dial in the stalls. 
I think that would work very well. My only memorable experience of actually being in anything, I was in Gilbert and Sullivan, I was in the Pirates of Penzance. And one day I was driving in for the matinee and I got something out of the boot of my car and for some reason something was wrong with the spring and it pinged back and hit me on the top of the head and cut my head really badly. And I was just gushing blood everywhere. And I had to put like a whole kitchen towel on top of my head and drive there with one hand and then put my wig on top and my policeman's <laughs> helmet to stop the blood squirting out. And then I did it and I couldn't remember anything about it afterwards. And people said that was a good performance. Well, you were so I think I was. <laughs> Not just a good performance, but good driving by the sound of it. <laughs> I like a one-hander. Well, you know I've got my international rally driving licence. I know, you pride yourself on your driving. Oh, I do. Another handbrake turn. <laughs> but driving and then doing Gilbert O'Sullivan with what was evidently blood loss and a concussion <laughs> was beyond the call of duty. Did you have an understudy? No. Just a lot of really brilliant no. camp policemen who used to come on. And I just remember the director once going, for Christ's sake, lads, you're policemen. You haven't got baskets of flowers. You've got fucking truncheons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the sound of Condide. I'm sorry I missed it. It makes me want to go back and try one of those national blockbusters. I certainly hope the National Theatre opens again soon. Oh, me too. You can go to outdoor places and there are some marvellous outdoor places. Um, but this for a segue. Uh, in Rome. And Rome you've chosen as your favourite place in the world, outside of, presumably, outside of South London. Have you made many visits to Rome? No, only one. <laughs> Just one. My first and last visit to Rome would have been in the early 90s, the 1990s, maybe 92, 93, something like that. And I've kind of felt I couldn't go back since because it was so fantastic. It would ruin it to go back again, really. And what I like about Rome, I like the fact that if Rome was built like Legoland, what's happened with Rome is that a kid having a tantrum has just picked up all the bricks for Rome and just chucked them in a bad temper all over the place. So when you get to Rome, history is just scattered around in front of you. Whereas kind of London is a bit kind of smart and up its own arse, Rome is just kind of a mess of history. So, for example, if you go to the Forum where Julius Caesar did Friends, Roman Countrymen, Lend Me Your Ears and all that bollocks, it's just all there, in like bricks kind of thrown around and no one really cares about it. No one ever brushes it or washes it. They just left it there for you to have a wander around if you want to. And, you know, you've got sort of history in the middle of traffic islands. It's so beautiful. And yes, it's such a mess. And I like the sort of chaos of it. And I like the fact that every time in Rome, when you step onto a zebra crossing, someone in a car tries to run you over, which, which I think is very entertaining. <laughs> they do take that as a challenge, don't they? And I'm good <laughs> friends with Judith Lucy, a brilliant Australian comedian. And she went to Rome and then came back and stayed at my flat in London. And she said the thing she liked most about Rome that summed it up was the police officers wore sunglasses and smoked cigarettes and <laughs> kind of looked like they were in an Italian film. 
And there is something about, it's very rough around the edges, as you say. When I went there, it really is extraordinary when you stand at the Colosseum. It's really something incredible about that place. Just the thought of people piling those stones on top of one another. So many of them still being there. It hasn't all been completely looted for other buildings. And you're seeing actual history right in front of you. Really, it's an amazing sight. The traffic is appalling. It's chaotic and filthy and crazy. And if you go to Lazio or Roma for a football match, you're quite fortunate to get back to the hotel without getting stabbed. But apart from these things, <laughs> it's got a lot going for it in atmosphere, hasn't it? It really has. And it's also got brilliant layers of history, you know, because you've not only got all the Roman stuff. I like all the Keats and Shelley echoes, you know, because I think it was Keats, wasn't it, who was buried outside the environs of the city because he wasn't Catholic, he was a Protestant. And there's an amazing sort of cemetery where he's buried, which I absolutely loved. And I used to go back there a bit. But I also love the Vatican. It made me full of rage and full of admiration at the same time because there's enough wealth in the Vatican to feed the entire planet for the next 500 years, if you ask me. And there it is all stuffed in a museum. They should sell the lot of it and give a whole lot to poor people. But one thing that I remember so well about the Vatican was I stepped into the Vatican Square. It was a beautiful sunny day. And as my foot landed in the Vatican Square, a huge sort of tornado blew up. And there was dust blowing everywhere. And it was almost as if I was Satan. And I kind of really enjoyed that. When you went to the Vatican, did you go into the Sistine Chapel? Uh, Yes, I did. Yes. And it hurt my neck. How long did you queue for? Oh, lordy. Not very long, actually, I seem to remember. Because if I had queued for a long time, I would have remembered that and put it in my diary of my Rome visit. But I think... It wasn't that long, no. And actually, I don't mind queuing in a foreign country because you get to have a look around at what all the Romans look like um, and all the other tourists, of course. I remember queuing to get to the Vatican and queuing and queuing and queuing to this corner and thinking we'll be nearly there. And then you went round the corner and the queue went on for about another half a mile. And then you walk through some quite spectacular corridors and then suddenly you're in this place. You don't even know that you're in it, you know. But I didn't really realise until I realised everyone was looking up and there it all is. It's quite hard to take it in, really. People are trying to take pictures with their phones. And I don't know if this happened when you were there. Perhaps this is more recent. But there's someone in the middle of the room going, no pictures, no pictures. The whole time that you're in there, trying to admire the handiwork of Michelangelo. I, I think a lot of great art is particularly disappointing. I went with our mutual friend of ours, Jez, and we went to see Arsenal play. And we went to St Peter's. And the Pope was at the balcony and we stood at the back and got blessed. Oh, did that help? Well, I'll tell you what happened to us. We went to the match, then we found a pub in town and then we came out of the pub and I booked us into the Holiday Inn St Peter's and it turned out the Holiday Inn St Peter's is nowhere near St Peter's. It's about three <laughs> miles out of town. It's complete con. <laughs> and we thought, how are we going to get back? And there was one taxi outside in the street and he drove back to going through all the red lights Jez goes to me, it's lucky Rubens Barrichello was driving a cab these days. And I think that it's possible <laughs> that we got that taxi because we'd been blessed by the Pope. Ah, I think you're right. Absolutely, definitely, yes. Do you think you'll go again? Have you taken your daughters to Rome? No, no, I'll never go again. No, I haven't taken my daughters there. They don't want to go to Rome. Don't they? They want to go to New Look or somewhere like that in Oxford Street. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Well, Rome is a wonderful place, and I'm glad you loved it, and thank you for reminiscing about it. Let's take you to the 1980s now, and the music that you've chosen that you love, which is the work of Elvis Costello. That's right. I've chosen the album King of America by Elvis Costello. It was very, very hard to choose any album from another one, really, because pretty much up until King of America, apart from a couple of slightly dodgy ones, I could have chosen anything. And I really chose this album so I could have a bit of another go at America (laughs) because... (laughs) Although I do really like the album and I think there's some brilliant songs on it. And I think it was sort of at this stage in his career that he'd written all this really brilliant kind of dark sort of British stuff, which I think his language is just incredible. He just writes fantastic poetry, really. I think one of my favourite lines, and I used to apply this to a lot of comedians that I saw in Edinburgh, was, you haven't earned the weariness that sounds so jaded on your tongue. And I saw a lot of comics like that in Edinburgh over the years. And I think what happened with King of America, there's some absolutely fantastic songs on it, and I do like it as an album. But following that, he kind of left England behind in his head and eventually physically and moved to America. And all the albums since King of America haven't appealed to me so much. And I think that was a kind of deliberate move on his part to sort of move away and to kind of be American for a while. And that doesn't mean really that the quality dropped. It means that it just wasn't my cup of tea anymore because it was about something that I wasn't as familiar with. He made that album, didn't he, in America and working with American musicians. And perhaps he was in his early 30s. He'd been playing a long time already. Do you think he was just ready for a new chapter in his life to spread his wings a bit? 
I think so, because he was someone that just changed all the time. I mean, he's done some incredible albums over the years, you know, which I don't think anyone else would even think of doing. For example, the Juliet Letters. We're back to Italy again. But in Verona, there's a priest who receives many letters to do with the whole subject of Romeo and Juliet, and he answers them all. And so Elvis Costello made an album about this in which he used his voice as a sort of fifth instrument in a kind of quintet. He used a classical quartet. And it's an absolutely fantastic album, and it's not something you would ever expect an ex-punk like him to do, but I absolutely love that as well. So he's always changing, and he's always kind of looking forward, whereas I reckon I had earned the weariness that sounded so jaded on my tongue by the time I was about 12, so I'd never kind of really bothered to do anything after that. Well, for people who, and maybe there are some listening who are not familiar with Elvis Costello, he was part of that new wave punk period, wasn't he, in the late 70s and 80s? He's an incredibly prolific songwriter. I'm looking at his list of albums now just on his Wikipedia page. There's a new album every year, 77, 78, 79, 82 in 81, 82, 83, 84, King of America then in 86, another album in 86, and on and on it goes. More and more albums, continually writing songs, releasing music, collaborative albums as well. He's won awards, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he's in the top 100 artists of all time and Rolling Stone. He's in his 60s now, but really something of a legend in music, greatly respected all over the world, really. Where were you in 1986? What were you doing when you were listening to this particular album? Well, in 1986, I was living in South East London and I was in charge of a psychiatric emergency clinic. I think the Brixton riots had just happened. So, you know, to some extent, his kind of clipped sort of bitter lyrics were, well, perfect for me at the time, really, because London was a real kind of hotbed at the time of trouble, really. So that's where I was. I was causing trouble and he was writing trouble. There's a great deal, isn't there, of social commentary in his songwriting, not just necessarily political or from a particular point of view, but everything that's happening around you at that time will have been feeding into his lyrics and into his music. He was kind of almost providing a bit of a diary of the times in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he was very popular with certain group of fans, but he wasn't populist. He never kind of went down the road of wanting to please ever bigger fan groups. So, for example, he wrote an absolutely devastating song about Thatcher, who he couldn't stand, called Tramp the Dirt Down, and that was all about him tramping the dirt down on her grave. Not exactly what a lot of people wanted to hear on Top of the Pops, I'm sure. Uh, And he also wrote a song about the Falklands and the devastation that that had caused. From that point of view, his kind of lyrics were as important, if not more important, than the tunes. And I have to say, let's face it, with most kind of pop songs, they're not really. You can pretty much say anything as they do in the Eurovision Song Contest and get away with no words as long as the tune's jolly nice. Yes, it's content extraordinary, isn't it? He's someone to turn to for a, a pithy phrase. One of his songs of his that I always loved was Pills and Soap, and that was from that period in the early 80s, really was about Thatcherism and the high unemployment, as you say, 
writes on the street, it's no exaggeration to say things were very bleak indeed. And that was just before the miners' strike that went on for a year. And he was really in the thick of things all the way through that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was indeed. And I think that's kind of why he never became sort of universally loved, because he was kind of too challenging and too bitter in a way. And I think with kind of popular artists, people don't really want to have their music kind of served up with a sort of helping of political lessons, if you like. And I think that's why he's incredibly well respected and has remained so over the years and worked with so many different artists and has done so many different genres of music, you know, country and Western and you name it. He's kind of worked with them all. And long may he reign as the king of America, but not for me, because obviously I don't like America. <laughs> well, he's got an American wife these days, hasn't he? Oh, I know. Why did he do that? Was it, did he have sex appeal for you? I know you went to see him many times in concert and there's been quite a fangirl way. I did. On one tour, I saw him seven nights in a row. No, I didn't fancy him because he's not the sort of person I fancied. I like sort of old trampy types that look like they'd slept in their clothes all night, <laughs> um, you know, like Malcolm Hardy. And um, <laughs> loads of people won't know who he is, but just think Frank Carson after a truck's gone over him. So, no, I didn't fancy him for his looks. I fancied him for his brain, to be honest. I thought he had a great brain. Yes, wonderful. And he's worked with, I'm looking, I'm scrolling down now, looking at, Costello has worked with Paul McCartney, Madness, Tony Bennett, Burt Bacharach, Johnny Cash. And it goes on and on, as well as producing the Pogues and influencing so many people, including a great hero of mine, Billy Bragg. So fantastic. If you're not familiar with Elvis Costello, really go back and listen to some of his albums. And if you do, I hope you've enjoyed Joe's lifelong virtually love affair. When you're really going back to your 20s when you're, as you say, working in that hospital and you're still in love with Elvis all these years on. It's fantastic. Now, Joe Brand, you mentioned there where you, well, for many, many years you worked in psychiatric nursing, didn't you? And had some harrowing experiences, I know, in the Morsey Hospital. But you've obviously still have a great affinity with that time and with that profession and with people who work in mental health care because you've chosen this, your book, The Heartland, by Nathan Filer, which is subtitled Finding and Losing Schizophrenia. It's a book really of the, you could say, of the history of schizophrenia, questioning whether schizophrenia really exists. Fascinating reading. And perhaps you could tell me why you like it so much. I like it so much because I think schizophrenia as an illness has been totally contentious over the years in terms of what it is, how you describe it, how you diagnose it. And I think for years and years, medical professionals just have not agreed about it. The general public, understandably so, are very ignorant about it. Most people think it means, because schizophrenia literally means split mind, most people think that it's someone with more than one personality, which to a total extent couldn't be further from the truth. Now, when I started as a nurse, Schizophrenia was a very discreet illness that had categories that basically you needed to fulfil to diagnose the illness. And these have been laid down for absolutely years, 50 or 60 years, and nothing had changed. So, for example, there may be kind of seven categories, and if someone fulfilled 
five of those categories, they had schizophrenia. And there were symptoms like auditory hallucinations in the third person. That means you hear voices, but you hear two voices talking about you for example, whereas there's another type of depression, a psychotic depression, where you hear one voice talking to you. So, you know, it's kind of complicated and there were lots of differences. Delusional ideas, that means that you have ideas that aren't based in cultural reality that something is going on. So you might believe that you're being followed or you might believe that someone on the TV is talking to you something like that. And it was all kind of all a little bit too tidy and a little bit too put in a box. And what Nathan Filer has done with his book is he's blown the whole thing wide open. He's an ex-nurse, so I like the language he uses. It's much more understandable for your average reader to read. It's not medicalized like it would be if a psychiatrist had written it. And it just talks about how people are who have schizophrenia. There are some really interesting case studies of very different people, all of whom have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, which sometimes they're funny, but they're also kind of heartbreaking. And I think this is the book people should read if they think that schizophrenia means someone's got two personalities, because it's easy to read. It gets you up to date with where we are with schizophrenia, what people's attitudes are towards it, how they treat it and what the lives of people who have schizophrenia are like. And I just think it's beautifully written and it's absolutely essential book. Yes, The Heartland by Nathan Filer. And it's, as you say, it is very accessible. Yeah, part of what he's trying to do is to tell everybody, ordinary people, about it so that we will stop doing this thing that comedians did for years of doing jokes about schizophrenics going oh, I'm a schizophrenic, so am I, which made audiences laugh, but it actually wasn't kind of accurate. And I think people who were ill with schizophrenia just got so frustrated in a way by the way that they were treated, not only because people didn't really know what schizophrenia was, but also because when you don't know what something is, you're frightened of it. And people were terrified of people with schizophrenia because they thought that they were sort of like a character from a horror film that kind of ran around with a machete without their pants on. And, you know, that is just so far from the truth. Here we go, we're back to America. That is a Hollywood portrayal of a schizophrenic. I'm sorry, America, but it's your fault. (laughs) Well, he does talk in the book, doesn't he, about the stigma of a diagnosis and how it is a common misconception that it's almost like it means that someone's a Jekyll and Hyde type almost, that they have a potentially violent and dangerous side to them that would emerge at any moment as they flip from one personality to another. And as you say, these are all complete misconceptions. And in fact, schizophrenics are more likely to be assaulted or suffer violence than to inflict it. And there's something very, as you say, heartbreaking about the case studies, especially those where people are hearing voices or they're delusional about their circumstances. But also there are uplifting moments where he talks about people who have been treated and recovered and can look back on periods of illness or mental health troubles and think, oh, God, I've come through something there and I feel I could restart my life almost. It's not necessarily a lifelong curse, shall we say. No, to some extent, I think that's right. And I think that the reason it's getting easier for people is because people who suffer from mental health problems have started to take back control of their own lives and to discuss 
the different ways in which they can deal with their illness. Whereas I think in the past, they were just sort of ordered around by doctors who said, take that medicine and go in the corner and have a cigarette and be quiet. You know, it was kind of a bit like that in the olden days. This is slightly before I was a nurse, but there were still echoes of it. Did you have any experiences, as he describes early in the book, of having to give someone a drug or some medicine that you perhaps didn't really want to or felt like you'd like to make another choice? You talk about medicating patients and how perhaps it's handled a little differently nowadays. Well, if I'm absolutely honest with you, no. I never had a situation where I felt kind of forced into giving someone some medicine that they didn't want, where it wasn't totally necessary. I never disagreed. And that's what I mean by the fact that there were echoes of the way people were treated badly, I felt. But by that point, things were sort of starting to get ironed out a bit. And there were a lot of occasions on which I gave people forced injections and those people didn't want them. But the thing to remember, I think, is that a lot of people who have an illness like that, they don't really realise what sort of danger they're in at the time because of not having any insight into the fact that they're ill. So I think I can say, you know, I never did that and I never felt uneasy because as a kind of member of the team and I was like in charge of the nursing team, I think if I'd said to anyone, I don't think we should be doing this, they would have actually listened. So it is very hard to do because you feel absolutely horrible for doing that to someone. But on occasions when they come back and they sit, they're a totally different person because they've got better. It's just so amazing to see because at the time when they're ill, you think things are never going to change for them. And they inevitably do. And stuff is getting better and more effective. Medication in the old days was absolutely, utterly useless. And it just used to make people into zombies. But it's getting a bit more sophisticated. And I'm hoping at some point in the future, it will be finely tuned and it will do the job a lot better. How how concerned are you at the moment? We're recording this. We're still in the midst of the pandemic, although lockdown has been eased in London in recent weeks, but still the effects of it are being felt. How concerned are you about mental health generally at the moment? Well, I would say concerned, really, because I think that even before the pandemic happened, there are certain groups in society, and I particularly mean kind of younger people under the age of 20, if you like, who aren't particularly well served by the services that are available because there just aren't enough of them. And so let's just say you're a teenager who's suicidal. Having to wait three months for an appointment is so wrong, and that's the sort of thing that would worry me you know I was in charge of a walk-in emergency service 24 hours that anyone could walk into at any time that they wanted now those services are very expensive to run and the one that I worked at was closed down about 10 or 15 years after I left And that's created the big kind of black hole into which a lot of people fall because the services aren't tailored to the sort of problems teenagers or young people have. Yes, it's a real problem for young people, isn't it? I do feel for them. I mean, I'm in my 50s. We've got the kids at home. So in some ways, lockdown was... Some days were quite fun. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be with them. But I did think if I was 16 or 18 or 20... Or when I started out on the comedy circuit when I first met you and we used to knock around together with a bunch of friends, I was in my early 20s. If I hadn't been able to go out for months and gig, I wouldn't have become any good as a comedian. I wouldn't have had any money. I would have been miserable. And I think this is really hard on um, 
on younger people. But thank you for recommending The Heartland. It is a fascinating and highly readable book about mental health. You don't need to have had any experience of mental health problems to enjoy it. At the moment, perhaps we're all having some experience of mental health problems, so more than ever worth reading. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, coming to the end of our chat, Joe, it's been lovely talking to you and hearing about all these things. And our final thing to talk about, the last of your seven pillars, is a memory of yours. And it's of a visit to the London Stadium during the Olympic Games. Uh, that's right, yeah. This is 2012. And, well, what happened was I went in for the lottery because our kids at the time were probably about 8 and 10, something like that. And so if you wanted to go to certain events, you just went online and you gambled and hoped that what you said you wanted to go to would hopefully come up, even though you knew that kind of a 100, a 1,000 times more people than could get tickets were applying for them. So I gambled, put down that I wanted to go on the day of the 100 metres final and was absolutely flabbergasted when I got tickets for it. And can I just make it very clear, very quickly, I didn't ring up Tessa Jowell, who would organise the Olympics, or I didn't phone up Usain Bolt and go, do you know who I am? I'm a comedian. Can I have tickets, please? I actually genuinely went in for the lottery with everybody else and I got the tickets. I was so delighted. So we went on that day. We went on the day that Usain Bolt won the 100 metres final and it was just fantastic. It was such an incredible day. I was, (laughs) here we go, there's a theme developing here. I was sat (laughs) next to an American guy. (laughs) No, I thought he was lovely. Um, <laughs> actually, he started it in a way because I was sat next to him and he said to me just before the race started that Justin Gatlin, who I'm not saying this, but a lot of people said he was a drug cheat. He said that Justin Gatlin was definitely going to win it and he was going to show that Usain Bolt who was who. 
So I, in my very polite way, went, um, I beg to differ. I feel very strongly that Usain Bolt is probably going to win the race. But, hey, let's just wait and see. And um, it was a bit before the race started where somebody threw a plastic bottle at Usain Bolt, which I don't even think hit him. And there was some, like, judo champion woman in the crowd who jumped on the guy that threw it and wrestled him to the ground. And that was all very exciting. And then, of course, Bolt won the race. And it was just fantastic. It was just an incredible day out. The atmosphere was amazing. The kids were a bit discombobulated. They did know what was going on, obviously, because they went three and one. But, you know, it was like such a big deal and such a huge crowd. And it was just an amazing thing to be part of, really. The whole Olympic Games was, wasn't it? I I kind of agree with... People who hark back to 2012, the huge, I know a lot of people thought it wouldn't work in London, that the traffic was too bad. I remember Oliver Holt, the sports journalist, campaigning for years for London not to have the Olympic Games. But London has really pulled together, showed the best of themselves. It was a magnificent event, so thrilling to be there, so well organised. The country pulled together with that memorable opening ceremony, showing all sides of the nation. And then within four years, we were divided down the middle by this awful leave and remain argument that still lingers on. And this divided us from relatively recently being so united and so upbeat. So it's lovely to hear those memories. I went to a few events at the Olympics, loved all of them. I tried the same lottery that you did, didn't get into any of the athletics events until the Paralympics. And then went along to the Paralympics. And again, the stadium was packed out. And Britain won a gold medal. I was on my feet, screaming, cheering someone around in a wheelchair. It was really, really thrilling and exciting to be. It was almost intoxicating, really. People from all walks of life, all ages were there. It was a stunning event, wasn't it? It was an amazing event, you know, and just the size of the stadium and the hugeness of it. And to be present at an event where there are so many incredible athletes from all over the world, it's so rare for that to happen. I mean, I've been to athletics at Crystal Palace a few times where you've got a smattering of those kind of talents. But to watch the 100 metres final was just almost as if it wasn't happening, really. I did wonder whether someone had put some drugs in my latte. (laughs) What a fantastic thing to be at. I love going to athletics because... There's always something going on, isn't there? There's always something in your corner of the stand. You might be watching the high jump and on the other side they've got the long jump or someone's throwing a javelin. It's really an amazing thing to attend. Yeah, absolutely, because it's not just one thing after the other. It's kind of, you know, quick run the 200 metres runners because there's a javelin coming past your head in a minute if you don't watch it. Yeah, I love all that. and I just think it's like kind of sports day at school, except they're quite a lot better. Yeah. They are pretty good. Well, what a wonderful memory. Thank you so much, Joe. At the end of this podcast, I get to spend an hour or so with somebody and hear their likes and the things that have influenced them and mean something to them and try and draw some thread together. And what occurs to me listening to you, here you are, you've been the scourge of the Daily Mail for years. You're a lefty kind of anti-establishment figure who might be accused of being anti-British, and yet you are plainly... A patriot. You love Elvis Costello because of his poetry about Britain. You love British holidays. Your pride in the NHS. Your pride in the London Olympics. You talk glowingly about the National Theatre. And you top it all with bangers and mash as your favourite meal. 
And it's lovely to hear it's a kind of a type of patriotism that I share. It's the things that we all love about Britain that aren't necessarily about Royal Britannia and flag waving. Have you ever been described as an out-and-out patriot before? I don't think I have. But what I would say is I think, you know, the thing is there's lots of different types of patriotism. And to some extent, being proud of being British has sort of slightly been nicked by the right wing. Well, not even slightly, like a lot. And so it's made people who may be left wing or apolitical and just kind of like people that want to get on with their life feel a bit guilty about sort of throwing their hat into that particular ring and I just don't think it should do you know just because you say you like being British and I know we've done a lot of appalling things in the past but I mean I didn't do them and neither did you I feel just as awful as most people do about how Britain was how it treated people in its empire to some extent you know I kind of feel I want to work harder to kind of rectify all those things and to be a part of Black Lives Matter speak out and say yes we realise that all that appalling stuff that went wrong but if you you kind of say that you're proud of being British immediately it just sends to me the wrong sort of message and I think that that's really sad I think people have tried to counteract it Billy Bragg is a good example for me of someone who kind of loves Britain but isn't a nationalist so I just think maybe it's a question of more people talking about it and saying they're proud and counteracting the reputation that being proud of Britain has actually got. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I couldn't agree more. Being a patriot means many other things, not all just about history. It's not all just about the military or the flag or the monarchy. It's about pride in what it means to be British and to live in Britain amongst British people and to be welcoming to those outside be friendly absolutely joe brand thank you so much for your seven pillars thank you alan davis for having me it was really good fun 